The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room. I'm Lauren Silva Laughlin, broadcasting from Connecticut, and I'm joined by Richard Beals in New York City and Rob Siren in Westchester. Thank you guys for joining me today. Uh, good to uh, be here, Lauren. What a day. One of those days where it's an exciting time to be a financial journalist, I think. History was sort of made today when a group of very small activists upended the board of directors at fossil fuel giant ExxonMobil. They gained at least two of their four directors that they nominated with the help of some institutional giants like BlackRock, and the votes are still being counted. Um, Rob, we've been watching this for a long time. In fact, well over a year ago, we zeroed in on Exxon as being sort of the white whale of activism. Um, and it's pretty remarkable that this small group of activists ended up being successful. What do you, what do you think was the most sort of remarkable thing about today's outcome? It's it's a combination of the fact that Exxon, you know, they, they were the biggest company in America for years and years and years. And then you had this this incredibly small activist, well, well under 1% of the shares, and they managed to get directors nominated the board. And the reason, um, you know, there are a couple of reasons. The, the two big reasons are that Exxon's returns have been miserable over the past decade. If you invested $100 10 years ago, you'd have $85 today. That's even after dividends, which is, you know, just miserable. And the other thing is that one of the reasons why the returns have been poor is because Exxon has continued to invest in exploring, trying to find new oil, and the returns have just been really bad. And of course, Darren Woods has been, you know, he's one of these sort of notoriously distant CEOs. When I was covering Exxon more regularly, he rarely came on the quarterly call, if ever. And even the analyst, you know, who typically are sort of apologists for companies in these sorts of situations started to get irritated about never hearing from <laughs> <laughs> never hearing from from woods you know i think though richard and maybe we sort of think about this in the context of of the complications for for energy companies and fossil fuel companies in particular you know the question about what Exxon does, you sort of almost feel bad for Woods in some ways because what can he really do? You know, he's an it's an oil company, and he's faced now with a very difficult decision about what he what, what direction he wants to take the company in. This seems like the shareholders are saying, okay, we should go into sort of a greener, you know, have a greener future, invest in yeah. greener projects, but those aren't necessarily very good. Well, I mean. I think the one one lens is short term versus long term, right? In the short term, it's tough. It's definitely really tough. It is an oil company. Other oil companies have the same problem. The BPs, shells of the world have tried a little harder to, you know, remain an energy company but focus more on renewable energy and less on fossil fuels. At least that's the goal. That hasn't obviously rewarded them yet in terms of investors' uh, view of their share price. That you're, you're quite right about that, Lauren. Um, so it is a little bit of a catch-22 in the short term, you know, because if you stick around and double down even more on fossil fuels, then investors aren't really going to like that either. And other, it, it also seems like, you know, the, the transition to renewables and less emissions is inevitable. And to sort of ignore, continue ignoring that is what got Excel into this mess with the activists. And now at least two of his directors are gone and replaced with other people. Um, 
I think something else to look at today as well, big news in energy around the world is Shell in Europe, where, you know, Shell has, as we just discussed, been doing more in this direction and has talked about cutting its emissions and so on. But a Dutch court, it's a Dutch-based company, a Dutch court told Shell it has to reduce its emissions more quickly over the coming years than it had planned to. So in terms of who are the stakeholders we're talking about, I mean, you know, there are people affected by pollution, there are people, there are investors, there are people who work at the company, there are governments sort of trying to incentivize a shift uh, to reduce climate change. Now you have the courts getting involved on a sort of very macro level with, with this company's business. So the other thing I'd point out is that one of the reasons why these um, these activists had success is the two people who were elected to the board, one is uh, Kaisa Hatala, who um, she ran the renewable division for Finland's Nesta Oil. Um, and what they did is they became a renewable um, <laughs> renewable refiner. Basically, that's been the growth engine of the company over the, ten, over the past 10 years. And the stock's up um, well over tenfold over the past decade. And a similar sort of thing with um, Greg Goff. He's he's more traditional. He, he was with Tesoro, but he showed that you could even make money, you know, with traditional oil companies just by being a bit smarter in capital allocation. And so I think that played, you know, sure it's tough to make money, and it's going to be tougher as the climate fight intensifies, but it's still possible. The one thing that I keep hearing from, you know investors who really still like fossil fuel companies and they exist once you can sort of talk to them behind closed doors is that um that the world still needs and um, you know the u.s still needs oil and gas in the interim and so there's an argument that exxon and chevron and some of the other big u.s companies need to stick around maybe they aren't the same in 30 years as they are today but over that transition you know, Americans still have gas guzzlers. I mean, how, Richard, do you see that future shaping up? Is there an argument that that the Biden administration and, and others, including investors, should still like oil? Well, like, I'm not sure. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a transition, it's a transition it's question, right? However yeah. much you want or one might want, you know, no more emissions ever from fossil fuels, it's going to be a transition. So however fast, however much uh, Joe Biden manages to invest, however much other countries invest, however much governments change the rules to incentivize a shift, you've got to build all the renewable energy capacity. You've got to find ways to phase out the fossil fuels. You've got to do something to help all the people who work in fossil fuels. Um, so it's it's going to take time. So you absolutely need these companies. I think I think one thing that we've um, you know, you've written about, we've all written about a little bit over quite a long time now is how do you sunset these companies? Because they can still make a ton of money, especially if they don't have to invest in new projects because the oil or coal or gas just won't be needed. You can make it throw off a ton of cash. That's not very attractive in a stock market where investors want growth. But it, it doesn't mean these are dead companies by any means, but you just have to change how you think about them. And I, I think that's where we talked about Chevron. I, I'll, I'll stop and we can perhaps come back to it. But if Exxon and Chevron were to merge, you know, once upon a time, that would be like, oh, my goodness, Standard Oil again, you know, Monopoly must break it up. Now it looks, you know, much less outrageous, that idea, if the industry is sort of in its twilight. 
Yeah, that's okay. We'll get back to that. But what you just said sort of triggered me into thinking something that we've talked a lot about and and written about at least twice, which is the sort of cigar butt argument, right? And there's one, of course, famous investor who not only likes milking companies for cash, but he likes uh, dying industries and fossil fuels, and he has $300 billion of cash and cash equivalents, and that's Warren Buffett. Um, so Richard, what do you, and Rob, what do you guys think about the sort of fantasy M&A of Warren Buffett buying Exxon someday? Um, I, I don't buy it, actually, because I think with Warren Buffett, what he's He's bought, sure, he's bought some fossil fuel industries, but they've tended to be regulated industries where you know he's getting a return. Um, he's also had some trouble buying uh, businesses which go away. And then don't forget his greatest success over the past years has been buying Apple, which is, you know, the opposite. So I think, I think you know, there's, there's the temptation to say, yeah, this thing puts out good cash flow right today. But the uncertainty surrounding it means it's, it's going to be a big step for anyone outside of oil to buy these sorts of companies just because there's so much uncertainty on the cash flow. I mean, what I would guess more likely to happen is, is yeah, sure, the Chevrons and also there, there are all these mid-tier oil companies, which, you know, there's they know their business is going away. So what do they do? They sell their fields and, and you know, whoever can get the oil out of the ground cheapest will have several years of, you know, good fortune. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm Richard, are you the other, the other. Yeah, I mean, it, obviously, the fantasy M&A is fun to look at. And, you know, with Exxon, which is currently worth $250 billion, you have to um, be looking at people with enormous resources. And, I mean, that's, you know, however big private equity companies have become over over the recent decades, it's like it's a huge ask for them to come up with whatever you would need to come up with, you know, a couple of hundred billion dollars at least of cash to, to buy this company. But, you know, mergers with others is not impossible. But, you know, ultimately, if Exxon wasn't worth so much, some of these things are easier to do. Decline is perhaps easier to manage in private, in the private sector, rather than with listed stock. So how that could come about, I'm not sure, but it's it's not an impossible sort of end game for, for these companies or any in declining industries to sort of be a cash cow, privately held, just you know, sort of hanging hanging in there to the bitter end of the last drop of oil gets used. What's kind of interesting, though, about that argument is that just is not how America's corporate laws and bylaws are really set up. And in in effect, you know, it's hard to see how a company actually makes that happen without going bankrupt and restructuring at least once. I mean, I think that's kind of why I've always thought that this Exxon Chevron deal made sense. Of course, now, and last time we looked at the numbers, Richard, you know, we were kind of saying, okay, Exxon and Chevron can merge because Chevron had gotten larger. And then since we've looked, of course, Exxon's stock has outperformed Chevron. And now the two are sort of a little bit more out of whack. What do you think has to happen in order for that deal to occur? Is it something that you think could still happen whereby they merge or even Chevron buys Exxon for a premium? Well, I'm going to put this put this in the box of fantasy M and A as well for the time being. I still think it's <laughs> I still think it, I still think it's some way off. Um, I mean, I, I was the idea of a more or less merger of equals when their market cap capitalizations were very similar was most appealing to me because that sort of feels like the way utilities like to behave. And if you sort of imagine you could change the mindset of reg, antitrust regulators, for example, and say, look. We're really just a sort of 
utility business now where we're, we're we recognize we're all in transition, but you need our oil for the time being. You know, just let us merge. Nobody's paying massive premium for the other. We'll be much more efficient. The oil will be cheaper, be fewer jobs lost. It's kind of, if you could change that mindset and keep the regulators at bay that way and just, you know, merge of equals seems to me to be a nice way to do that. And that obviously only works in sort of deal math if the market caps are similar. And right now they're not similar enough probably and and then right now the antitrust environment probably isn't isn't the way i just described it either what, what do you think lauren i mean i i tend to get excited about big deals so of course i want it to happen <laughs> um, and also i think because woods is vulnerable i think because today's vote was sort of a you know a referendum on his job in some ways and and you know his job might be at stake in the coming months then you can see a situation where Chevron CEO Mike Worth is opportunistic and says, "Yeah, we might be a smaller company, but we're going to merge, and I'm going to, I'm going to take that top seat." Um, and and this Chevron has always had the advantage of being the smaller company and therefore staying out of the limelight. You know, Exxon and, and Exxon is just generally a more secretive company based in Texas versus Chevron that's in California. You know, they've had a different approach to talking to shareholders and acknowledging climate change. So Chevron is in a better position to bring, I think, these two companies forward, at least in terms of of the future. But um, I agree with you at this point, Chevron is just too large almost to really do anything, unless, of course, you saw um, a foreign company, Shell of BP, come in and and try to do something, or even Saudi Ramco, which, of course, would never happen, but won't stop us from thinking about it. The The other thing to keep in mind is that, you know, if you... This is true today. If you look in the future, I mean, it's pretty clear that oil's demand will fall. These companies will be smaller eventually, you know, unless unless, unless activists have, you know, succeed in pushing them to new businesses. And as these companies get smaller, all these other options open up, you know, it becomes easier to merge them. It becomes easier for private equity. It becomes, you know, easier for some big buyer to buy them. Yeah, that's true. It's a long way to go, though, from 300 billion to 50, which I think is the largest attempted. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, but you know, to be fair, Exxon, I think, was worth 150 billion earlier this year, so it's not impossible. Well, so, and, this, and they did talk about a deal, right? We know they talked about true. a deal. Yeah. It may, may or may not have been super serious, but they had the conversation. Well, this was a very exciting day. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank Richard Beals and Rob Searin for being on it. Thank you guys for chatting about this. I know we'll all be watching it with very eager eyes in the coming months. And um, thank you to our producer, Freddie Joyner in New York. And our final thanks goes to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. And check us out every day on breakingviews.com. Don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.